Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study, The Desire for Eternal Life. We will, um, we will take today, and then just due to scheduling, we've got some weeks off. Um, next week will be the children's Christmas service over in the sanctuary. We walk through the scriptures, the children enact it. Um, it's really wonderful. We dwell in the Word of God richly. We sing Christmas songs. Um, and of course, there's, uh, there's no practices, no pressure, which all of us with young children love. So, and a little bit of chaos ensues every year, but it's a joyful time. So we'll be doing that next week. And then the next two weeks will be on Christmas break. Of course, the 26th and um, the 2nd, uh, we've traditionally taken both those Sundays off, just lighter Sundays, and so um, divine service, of course, but no adult class those Sundays. So we'll get a, we'll get a nice little uh, you know, month-long break or so before we come back and, and wrap up the themes of, of this class uh, and then jump into something new. Before we... Um, return to where we left last week, which is in the book of Revelation, glimpsing St. John's beatific vision that he shares with us. Um, Before we do that, let's begin with an invocation with the Lord's Prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so where we left off last week was really at kind of an amazing visionary experience that the scriptures give to us. Um, What is heaven like? And the Bible's answer can be found in um, St. John's uh, text, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, And this, of course, um, the material begins in verse 4 of Revelation. And I'm I'm not going to redo it all here, of course, but I'll just, in broadest brushstrokes here, um, try to paint the picture again. That when you put all these pieces together, and we'll tie this in with we'll tie this in with Romans 7 before we depart, but um, When you tie all these pieces together, you have this great crowd that no one can number. Their garments are white. They've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. In their hands are palm branches signifying victory, uh, reminiscent of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. Now he has truly been enthroned, that is, on heaven's throne which is also the throne of the new Jerusalem, that just has not yet become manifest. That waits until the end of Revelation, the end of our age. All right, so John goes up into heaven. He sees this great crowd of witnesses. These are the saints. We spend some time talking about the diversity of the saints in heaven. And one reflection we have, too, is the longer you live in life, the more and more your treasures are truly stored in heaven because the more the people you care about and love are there rather than here. You start to see kind of an emptying out of this life, an emptying out of the people you knew and loved and cared about your generation. Increasingly, your treasure and your home is with them in heaven. And that's, that's simply to be, to be noticed. And it's part of our desire for heaven is we start to feel kind of orphaned. I think when you're young, you always have this desperate feeling of missing out. 
It's really kind of what drives people, young people, to go out on Friday and Saturday nights, you know, to the bar scene and all this, even though it's rather terrible. It's just kind of have this fear of missing out. And that's, that taps into a deeper fear we have of, of death is missing out. Like, what do you mean? The world's gonna, the world's gonna go on without me? Things are gonna happen? Um, but as you get older, one of the gifts that God gives you is you go, nah. <laughs> <laughs> Let it go on without me. I know enough about what this is. And you're ready to be done with it. You're ready to be done with it. You're not feeling like you're missing out at all. In fact, if you're missing out, you kind of feel like I'm missing out in heaven. That's where I want to be. That's, that's the great, the great party, the great gig in the sky that I want to be part of. It's where all my friends and family are. It's where my true treasures are. Um, the people I've known and have helped and who have helped me, um, redeemed by the blood of Jesus. That's, you know, Heaven is my home in that sense. Uh, it's absolutely right. So, you know, this is, this is part of it. This is part of it. Um, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Every day saints are dying and, and making their way to the throne of God, surrounding that throne. So many that cannot even be numbered. What a glorious sight that's going to be. Diverse, but unified all in this, in their faithfulness toward God and their love for God and their hope fulfilled in His face. Instant camaraderie, instant familiarity, instant um, family, uh, because you're united on the most important thing. And you're all rejoicing because no longer is faith experienced, uh, oh, excuse me, let me put it this way. No more is God experienced by way of the word only and the ear only, but now it is experienced also by the eye, by sight. What a change that is um, to be able to see the difference between believing and seeing a magnificent change that takes place and, and a change that actually changes you. You know, we glimpse this. We have a foretaste of this when you have these um, kind of majestic moments in life. Maybe you're standing on the mountaintop or there's this beautiful lake that you're beside or it can even be in, you know, seeing your children around the Christmas tree or something. There's just this moment that forms a snapshot of time and you see it with your eye. Um, and of course, we have memories. Those who have gone on to be with the Lord, we have memories, these snapshots um, that are very, very meaningful. And, and as we go through life, more and more meaning gets piled into those, those memories, those experiences, those visions, those glories. It's all a foretaste of what it will be like to see our God to see his salvation, to see the Lamb, the sevenfold spirit, to see the redeemed around the throne, to know so many of them by name, to meet others, perhaps. Um, you know, this is, this is part of the fulfillment of our greatest desires for heaven. And it's, it's part of what we can begin to is, you know, the devil plays a dangerous game. Um, and, and the fallen angels play a dangerous game in trying to tempt us and trying to afflict us with sorrow upon sorrow and at the time of death or or other tragedies to really attack our faith in Christ and try to try to make God noxious to us so that we flee away from him and grow distant from him in our hearts but it's a dangerous game why because these attacks can so easily be judo flipped <laughs> and the very way in which we're attacked we can come to understand how God's glory overcomes that and transforms that very thing into a hint of what is to come, 
of the glory that is to come in all. So I won't, I won't go into any more depth or detail along those lines. It would be too long of a digression, I think. But all of this to say, um, increasingly, increasingly, we start to see in this life um, that our fulfillment is not here, but in that which is to come. We start desiring eternal life and desiring to be gathered around the saints in the throne of God. Now, in John's revelation, of course, as you, um, as you, as you kind of make your way, as it were, through this great crowd of witnesses, you have 24 elders. We think maybe the patriarchs of the Old and New Testament, glorious, sitting enthroned, and yet casting their crowns down before the one who is King of Kings, Lord of Lords. In the midst of these are uh, four living creatures, seraphim. They're so wild, I could spend probably the next 25 minutes just describing them. And it's a, it's a nice entrance into the majestic strangeness of the angelic class. Again, what a, what a anesthetic kind of lie Satan has told us, especially around this time of the year where all angels are these chubby little babies with wings, you know, just flapping around. I mean, never once in all the scriptures are they described like this. Now, okay, so how would we understand those and interpret those charitably? Um, that angels are, are harmless, are innocent, are good, are also children of God. So that would be the charitable way of trying to see how the artists depict the angels as chubby babies. Um, but in the scriptures, um, they're not. And these uh, four seraphim, you know, they've got, they've got four faces, each going a different way. Um, all, different, all different faces, eagle, ox, etc. Um, then you've got, um, and these creatures are huge. That's the idea, they're huge. And in some way, shape, or form, they even kind of seem to form the base of the, the base of the throne. When the throne of God is moving, um, there's these other angelic beings that show up and they're, they're so ge- geometrically impossible to describe. We can't even picture what they look like. Right? It, Ezekiel talks this way and they're covered with eyes. And they're, they're designed in such a way that they can roll in any direction without turning. Like wrap your mind around that one. Okay. Uh, but now these form kind of the base and these four living creatures kind of like carrying the platform upon which sits the glorious one, the Son of Man, whose glory is just indescribable and uh, much more glorious even than they. And he sits upon it. So when the chariot of God is moving, they're forming the base and carrying this, carrying the throne of God. Well, anyway, they're there, they're worshiping. And of course, as you approach then, God himself, how beautifully, how beautifully John receives and explains this vision. Um, the first, the first thing you would see is you would see the seven torches, great huge menorah, candelabra, um, burning with fire. And those are the, those are the sevenfold spirit, the seven spirits of God. Do you remember how John does this? As you're looking at those burning flames, suddenly you see behind him the lamb and those seven flames are his eyes. Yeah, so we learn so much from this. I mean, this is such a beautiful way of theology because John doesn't sit down and say, let me tell you about the Trinity. Chapter 1, verse 1, <laughs> you know, um, there's three go- there's three persons in one God and they interact as such and don't interact as such and um, this kind of scholastic approach. Uh, John does it all in a picture and he does it all in a way that you can even, we kind of have this, if you're able to, to imagine this, to envision this, to kind of see it in your mind's eye. 
Um, the more you just think on and dwell on this, the more you're going to come to a fuller understanding of the Trinity. It's just how it works. It's one of the glorious ways the Spirit teaches us in His Word. Okay, how so? Well, the Spirit is the light which enlightens Christ. If you don't have the candelabra, you don't have Christ that's behind Him. It's the Spirit who's doing that. And He enlightens Christ who is behind. And yet, and so we see a distinction between the seven torches and the Lamb. There's a distinction between the Son and the Spirit. And yet, we also see a unity in, uh, of them, don't we? Because the eyes are the same. The eyes are the same as the flames. So you see a unity. Now, the same thing happens then as you kind of your focal point shifts to the Lamb who is standing there with seven horns, perfect power. Um, you know, one before whom you may not want to stand. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Let every... Every knee bow and every tongue confess. Um, and he's got the seven eyes blazing with fire. And he stands um, bearing, bearing the scars of the crucifixion, this lamb, as one slain and yet standing. So instantly enlightened by the Spirit to see Jesus is to see the crucified one. And that what's so beautiful about that is even as the resurrected one, he is the crucified one. He never ceases to be the crucified one. The glory of that is the surety of our salvation. And really the worthiness, our worthiness to stand before that throne and see with our eyes such glories and wonders, to gaze upon God. This is only granted to us by his wounds and by his blood that cleanses us from our sins. He is the sole reason we can be here standing and seeing what we see. Now behind him, as the focal shifts, as the focal point tries to shift to the, to the one who is bef- behind the lamb, an interesting thing happens. And John hints at this by describing it in a weird way. That, that Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, is always described as being in the midst of the throne. What does that mean, in the midst of the throne? That just doesn't really make sense. Like, almost you get this idea that this throne's this gigantic place and he's just like, there? No, that can't be. So what's John getting at that he's in the midst of the throne? Well, we went through the description of the one sitting on the throne. Remember this? You might not, because it's so nebulous and it's so mysterious. Remember, the, the closest kind of glimpse we get is this figure seated upon the throne and he's enshrouded in this spherical rainbow. All the colors, all the light, all the glory. But to really grasp him, one can't quite. Remember what Philip says to Jesus. Show us the Father. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long and still you do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. So as you're gazing upon the Lamb, and you see that he's in the midst of the throne, The only way to properly perceive this nebulous one upon the throne is to perceive who he is in Christ Jesus. The Son is the visible image of the invisible God. And so, again, what do we see here? We see a distinction between persons. There's the one who's seated upon the throne, the Father, and then there's the Lamb, the Son. And yet there's a oneness shared between them that you cannot comprehend the Father except through the Son. And so you see that oneness too. And again, you, would you see the Son and thus see the Father if not for the Spirit? Of course not. The Spirit's the one enlightening it all. And so you can see, I mean, what could you conclude from all of this if you thought online? You would conclude perfect orthodox doctrine regarding the Trinity. 
<laughs> and there wasn't a single dogmatic treatise or, you know, point one, paragraph three, sub dash five uh, kind of theology. It's just simply taking it in and marveling at the sight. Now, as we glimpse this sight only, uh, what, is, what does Paul say? As through a mirror dimly, <laughs> insofar as God grants it to our imaginations, it's still a matter of faith. Because even what we might imagine is subject to change and really is a product of the word, revelation, as we went through in detail last week. And, and that word resonating in our ears and then our pious imagination being conformed to that. And again, all of this malleable and fluid enough that when we see the real thing, we'll gladly set aside anything that we were inaccurate upon. But again, what this all hints at and portends to is that we will see with our eyes and we will know even as we are known. And um, that is the beatific vision, really, as, as brought forward by the Holy Spirit through St. John. And part of our great longing, our great longing and desire for eternal life with God. Okay. Is everybody warm enough? All right. Yeah, my blood's starting to thicken to the point I can't get anything through to one from one synapse to the other here. Um, would someone be willing to attack the thermostat back there? Uh-oh, they've taken the controls away from this one. Maybe I'll just turn it off. That or else I'm going to have to bust out my clergy shorts here in a second. It's just awkward for everyone. They're like the navy blue ones that the postmen wore in the 80s that are up here. Same thing. Knee-high socks and everything. Very undignified. All right, let's jump ahead to Revelation 7. And what we're going to see here is kind of a continuation of this of this vision and okay to recontextualize ourselves too within the broad scope of this study and in just a minute too if this is all like a little highfalutin for you no problem we're going to be highfalutin for a few more minutes and then we're going to bring it down to its basics and I'll give you a resource and way that you can kind of do your own research just in the in a very basic foundational kind of way and make sure that everything I've been telling you about heaven is right. Um, but again, to recontextualize, what, what we want to see is um, we, we want to see that there's more diversity here than simply dying and going to heaven. There's more, there's more here in the biblical revelation. Okay, When you die, today you will be with me in paradise. Your soul goes to be with Jesus. Your body goes into the earth. We are in heaven. We are witnessing what John witnessed, what Paul witnessed, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know. Remember this? Um, we are seeing the throne room of God. Okay, but we are waiting there. We're waiting there for the last day, at which point in time heaven is emptied. We are raised in our bodies, and there's a full-on assault on the earth to drive away Satan, the fallen angels, and the wicked men who are on their side. And that's really to come in the chapters of Revelation. But you can think of just as when Jesus ascends into heaven, Satan and the wicked angels are cast out of heaven. They come down to earth, woe to the earth, for they're here and they know their time is short. That's why things are like, you know, the devil's been defeated. He's already been kicked out of heaven. Um, in that picture of, of Genesis, 
the heel of Christ has already come down upon his head, but we're seeing the death throes and the tail lashing around and in a sense even greater violence than we've seen before where he could be cunning and precise and now it's just reckless and there's damage anywhere he can make damage. So that's what we're enduring right now, but the time is short and God's going to come in Christ Jesus and with the holy angels, with the saints of heaven, um, and we are going to remove him not only then then also from earth, right? So that he'll be removed not only from heaven but also from earth. And then everything's got to get wiped out, cleansed with fire in the view of Saint Peter, completely purged and rendered as nothing, and yet and yet in continuity with what's to come, um, because it is in fact a new heavens and a new earth that are to come forth. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful imagery of this in the. That hymn, the Dies Irae, when out of the ashes, yeah, it's just beautiful. The resurrection taking place out of the ashes, ex favilla, out of the ashes, and sort of then from that coming forth, the new heavens and the new earth, which is a very interesting way to think about it. Um, the first earth was destroyed by water, the second by fire. There's going to be a deluge of fire, and then forth from the ashes will come the children of light and the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, so that's the big sweep in picture. In this sense, heaven is not our home um, because we're waiting for the fulfillment, the new heavens and the new earth. New heavens, why? Heavens have been stained with sin. Satan was there. Heavens have been stained with war, strife. Same with the earth. All needs to be purged and cleansed and then utterly made new so that we inherit that in our bodies made new. All right, so in the meantime, though, we're glimpsing What's going on up there right now? And should we die, what will we see? And again, John's revelation gives us many answers to this. So where do we get this great multitude that no one can number? That's Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages clothed in white robes. I'm going to hear more about those white robes in a minute. With palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See again the close proximity there between God on the throne and the Lamb, the Father and the Son. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders, and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Which, of course, we see um, worship of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, this is fascinating. Saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And we so often just go, well, that's a lot of words. And they don't seem particularly like, you know, chosen with reason or purpose. I think that that's, that's going too far. But one thing I would simply point out is notice. Blessing is one. Glory, two. Wisdom, three. Thanksgiving, four. Honor, five. Power, six. Might, seven. See the sevenfold praise of God? And now we see the sevenfold spirit. Where's he? Ah, he's in side of the saints and angels leading their sevenfold praise of God and the Lamb. You see. 
So where, where the scriptures, it's not Lutheranism that does this, it's the scriptures that do this over and over, where it's the Father and the Son, God and the Lamb. And, you know, around the 70s, people started being like, well, where's the Spirit? The one showing us the Father <laughs> and the Son, the one giving us faith, and the one enlightening our hearts and minds that we sing the sevenfold praises of God, that are praises worthy um, of, of He alone who is worthy. And so that's what's going on here, too. The Holy Spirit is doing his typical thing, hiding in the saints and angels and crying out with this sevenfold um, liturgical chant, blessing, this worship, blessing and, and glory and, and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to God, be to our God forever and ever. Amen. All right. Then one of the elders, yeah, one of these 24 elders addressed me, that is addressed John, because John's the one who's been swept up into heaven in the Spirit to witness these things, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? Best possible answer. I said to him, Sir, you know. <laughs> a very polite way of saying, I have no idea. <laughs> you tell me. And he said to me, These are the ones coming. Now this is present participle. This is continually emerging. These are the ones coming out of the Great Tribulation. Here we see some of the fluidity with which the term Great Tribulation can be used. The Great Tribulation can refer to that time period that's extremely acute at the very end of all things. We don't know the timing of that. Um, neither do any of the angels, so we shouldn't waste our time trying to figure out the timing. But the Great Tribulation can also be spoken more universally of the entire travail from the fall and enslavement by the quote-unquote God of this world, Satan, um, all the way to the end. The entire thing constitutes a Great Tribulation. If you don't think so, um, you know, maybe we can sit down with some news articles and uh, <laughs> some scriptures and see if, see, if it could, I mean, see if you could really fathom worse. Yeah, it's pretty much a Great Tribulation. Um, from the beginning to the end. These are the ones coming out of the Great Tribulation, presently emerging. The picture is there that this innumerable crowd gathered around saints and angels, the wildest church service you can imagine, with the most interesting-looking people, and sounding people. Have you ever heard an angel sing? Me either. I bet it's amazing. And I bet it's diverse. That's the other thing. I bet it's surprisingly diverse. I can't remember. I think it was Thomas Aquinas who argued this way, that we should look at humanity as the pinnacle of um, enfleshed creation. But then you've got this extreme diversity underneath us, don't you? And he compares that to like the archangels, and he says we ought to expect every bit as much diversity in the angelic realm, if not more, because it seems to be more numerous and more superabundant. And because if God, you know, I, again, we get this really, really bizarre, like, anemic kind of view of God and heaven. And I don't know why, it's just part of our Gnosticism and part of Satan's attack on our flesh. This really anemic view of like, it's just people and all the people are the same. It's just angels and all the angels are the same. We're going to go up into heaven. It's going to be boring. Get a gold harp. Some clouds are going to be around. Where's God? Not really anywhere. Hopefully there'll be a golf course for people who like to golf and you know some waves for people who like to surf. And uh, I guess that's heaven. Uh, yeah, not in the Bible. And that, the more people kind of describe that as heaven, the more I go, ooh, I don't want to be there. 
<laughs> it kind of sounds like hell. If Jesus, if Jesus isn't the front and center, it kind of sounds like hell to me. You know, Jesus is life. Jesus is salvation. If Jesus isn't there all the time, I don't want anything to do with it. That sounds boring. Um, but if Jesus is there, the wonderful, wonderful diversity of God. Um, I mean, you can glimpse this even in the people and the emphasis on this. Great multitude, every nation, every tribe, people, language. I mean, wild, wild diversity of the saints. Wild diversity of the angels gathered all around. And so, so of these saints, you know, who are they? These are the ones coming out of the Great Tribulation, back to verse 14. And the elder continues to tell John, catechize John, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Is that how laundry works? Heaven's laundry, apparently. The scarlet of our sins meet the scarlet of his blood, and somehow that ends up with white, white robes, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Later in Revelation 12, it is these who are described as conquering the dragon through the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, word and blood. Um, baptismal imagery. Washing, baptism. It's literally what baptism means. To so be baptized, to be washed in the blood of the, in the blood of the Lamb, to be clothed in these white robes. You know, the early church, as I mentioned last week, you got baptized naked. Um, you had to be careful when you've got a, you know, there were, there were ways in which this was done for females, um, so that, you know, there was, it's not like you had the priest or the elders there or something like this. At bare minimum, in some instances, there were screens. In some instances, there was distance or a different room. Um, but yeah, you were baptized naked because naked you came into this world <laughs> and naked, so to speak, you're going to go. And so to be born anew is to be born naked and to immediately be clothed in the righteousness of that robe that is Christ's righteousness. So Paul talks about this, obviously, in Galatians 3.27. But let's see now. So washing their robes made them white in the blood of the Lamb. All right, and then you have this beautiful um, verse 15. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him. That's a liturgical, you know, it's not like he's like, okay, I need somebody to go, uh, you know, mow the lawn and somebody else rake the leaves, somebody else got to shovel snow. That's not what it means to serve him day and night. Um, but this language of serve is liturgical language. There's no greater joy in heaven or on earth than to worship God whom we see with our eyes. This is the fulfillment of all our desires to go back to kind of the foundation that Gerhard laid for us all those weeks ago. Um, this is This is what we were made for. Part of our frustration in this life is we're looking for all these things and they're not quite what we think they should be. Part of that on account of the fall, but part of that more deeply on account of they were never meant to fulfill the purpose that we are desiring them to fulfill. So it's not infrequent that husbands look to wives to be their saviors. Wives look to husbands to be their saviors. It's not infrequent that fathers and mothers look to their children to be their saviors. Or children look to their parents to be their saviors, and lo and behold, generation after generation without fail are disappointed. <laughs> um, we're always looking for um, the, the fulfillment and satisfaction of our souls. And we're looking in all the wrong places, because the one place that we can have that is in the beatific vision for God. You know, that's where all like puzzle pieces, and that's the only puzzle piece that fits, is to see God and worship God in his kingdom. That's where we're finally at rest, at peace, filled with joy 
and with all the gifts and blessings of God. So this is what it means to serve him day and night in his temple. Interesting factoid. Interesting factoid, because the typical American way of thinking about heaven is you just blast off and um, you're up there in the clouds with your golden harp. It's terribly boring. It's basically like a desert of clouds and endless day, <sighs> which sounds wretched. Sounds wretched. Sounds like the, well, those are my personal preferences. It sounds like a beach day that never ends. You just can't put on enough sunscreen. You can't bury yourself in towels enough. You want to get a snorkel and just go hang out in the water with only the snorkel out. Um, endless day. No, but what do we see here? Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night. Interesting. What's this? Heaven is described as having a day and night? Well, if the Bible hadn't said it, I would have never believed it. But that bespeaks an interesting connection with the earth. And it also bespeaks an interesting theme that there is change. There is a timeline. You know, the other, I think the other fib we kind of get told in Gnostic American Christianity is that you kind of blast off into eternity. I mean, to do so would be to be God. <laughs> because if you're eternal, you're outside of time by definition. And if you're outside of time by definition, then you know all things that were... So all of these things are a piece and a component together. You can't be in nude eternity without knowing all things and seeing all things and experiencing no shift or change in time. That is time. You have to be outside of it. We were never designed for that, and heaven isn't set up that way. Um, to be a creature is to be within time. And of course, our, our philosophers and our physicists all know this. Um, what is time defined at its most basic? Change. A succession of events, X, one minute, Y, the next. In order to have that, you have to have time. Otherwise, it's perfect stasis. Um, these are qualities that belong only to God. So what do we see? That heaven is a created realm with time. Earth is a created realm with time. And those times are wed. And then the new heavens, the new earth will be, will also have time. And those time, and those timelines, those worlds are one and they will be wed. Okay, so we get all of that just from this little line that they're serving him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. You know, it's very interesting. He who sits on the throne is probably most specifically the Father, but you always say it with a little hesitancy. Earlier, he's, he's been described as the one seated upon the throne. Um, you see that, for example, in verse uh, 10, God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. Okay, so he who is seated on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Well, what have we seen so far? There's that spherical rainbow around him, so reminiscent of God's grace to Noah and to the whole world that he will no longer drown it in a flood. His grace and his mercy saved Noah and seven others. So that rainbow, in all likelihood, is what is sheltering us with his presence. It's, it's his grace, it's his mercy, it's his love. All right, they shall hunger no more. Now notice it doesn't say they won't eat, but they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. It doesn't say they won't drink. It just says you won't hunger or thirst. There will be no necessity. The sun shall not strike them. See, now this is a Bible verse I can get behind. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Hmm. What a blessing, cool areas. 
Do you feel what I mean? <laughs> I always joke. It's a running joke in my house. The hottest times of the year are the coldest times of the year. Because no sooner does it get just a little bit cold, and you go, oh, what's this sensation? It's slight discomfort. Could this be what the books call cold? Let's fire on the heater. Oh, and then it's so hot, I'm like breaking out my summer clothes. Well, yeah, no, no sun shall strike them, nor any scorching heat. Okay, now we move to the Lamb. We have the one seated upon the throne. That's arguably the Father, I think it is. Say it with a little, little softness, a little hesitancy. And then verse 17, for the Lamb, look at this, in the midst of the throne. What on earth does that mean? Oh, I explained what I think it means earlier. Will be their shepherd. Beautiful turn of phrase. The Lamb will be their shepherd. Glorious, paradoxical, wonderful, mysterious. And he will guide them to springs of living water. So there's, there's drinking, taking in life, refreshing, cool, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Okay, so this is a vision of what's happening. And now, what do we see is happening in heaven, present tense? Okay, the people are serving God, but is God just sitting up in heaven being like, a little louder in the back, can't hear you, can't hear you. Is that God? Uh-uh. What's God doing in the midst of the heavenly worship? Well, again, the one who is seated on the throne is acting. He is sheltering them with his presence. What is the lamb in the midst of the throne doing? Shepherding them, pastoring them. That's literally what shepherd means. Guiding them to springs of living water so that they can drink. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And wiping away every tear from their eyes. Now, this is what, if this is, if this is a glimpse into heavenly divine service, what on earth is going to be happening on earthly divine service? Well, this is why we Lutherans call it divine service, and we're oddballs for doing it. But it's worth it, because we have grasped something about, from the scriptures about heavenly worship and earthly worship. And that is that we're not all gathering in a giant warehouse with flashing lights in order to offer our Worship and praise to a God who's somewhere, everywhere, nowhere, and not doing anything other than receiving our praise and maybe furrowing his brow a little that we chose to sip latte during that stanza of the song. Um, or flip it, and you've got kind of this Roman Catholic imagery where you come and God is so far and so distant. You need layers upon layers of mediation, priests, saints, Jesus is so cranky, you better go to his mom. She's a little more tender-hearted than Jesus. And somewhere up there is the Father. And you're down here as a peon. All you're doing is worshiping. It's all up there. Who knows if any of it's connecting. And then we're gonna, we're gonna do the sacrifice of the, of, uh, of the altar, not the sacrament of the altar, which is God's gift to us. But we're gonna turn this into our gift to God in hopes that he'll receive it. And who knows if he will. And, if we ever think that he has certainly forgiven our sins, this is a sin in itself because we should be uncertain about these things. I mean, this is Roman Catholic worship. Again, man is doing all the doing, just like in evangelical worship. Man is doing all the doing. And what's God doing? He's somewhere up there, everywhere, nowhere, not doing a darn thing. The problem with that is should be evident right here. God in heaven, even in heaven, 
continues to serve his people. The lamb continues to pastor his people. What on earth is going on in our worship down here? The same thing. This is why we call it in, in German, Gottesdienst. Doesn't that sound majestic? Yeah. God, God's service. Okay. The divine one, our Lord Jesus, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. The divine one is present. And I came not to be served, but to serve. And so he is serving us. Heaven's worship and earth's worship are the same. Now, we all serve him in the liturgical sense, giving him thanks and praise. But the most important, the central actor, the central thing happening is the Father and the Son caring for the saints. So we glimpse that that reality on earth is mirrored in the reality of heaven. And in truth, in the sacrament of Jesus, we see that heaven and earth are wed and the worship of earth and heaven are one. How so? Because Jesus takes bread on earth and says, this is my body. Wine on earth and says, this is my blood. Here I am for you. Is there one Jesus on the altar here with us and and another Jesus somewhere in heaven? There would be two Jesuses. No, there's one Jesus. And if he is here with us, then so also is all of heaven. It's one Jesus that now all of earth and all of heaven have gathered round. I think this is, if there's any symbolism whatsoever to the, to the pews with a center aisle, one side is heaven, the other side is earth. And by the way, when our loved ones die and go join that, that crowd in heaven, they're just changing They're just crossing that center aisle, which is death, and they're just going to the other side of the church to wait for us to come. But it's the same divine service because it's the same Jesus gathered here who's in heaven and who's now on earth. We're all wrapped into the heavenly worship. And this is why our liturgy says, with angels, archangels, and the whole company of heaven. We're all gathered there together. I talked about this in one of my Thursday classes. Pastors have this really terrible way of speaking. They'll say, um, they'll say to one another, how many do you worship on a Sunday? Well, one God in three persons. (laughs) That's precisely how many I worship. No, no, no. Don't be wise with me. How many people are there? Well, I don't worship them. That's a Freudian slip if ever there was one in our church growth days, worshiping numbers. Every Sunday, a mini census. Satan leads David, the pastor, into. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so how many do you worship? Well, uh, one God, and you know, th- and th- this is the um, and this is the nature of that worship too. Then, maybe the smallest service I've ever ever preached at or held the sacrament at would be like 10,000 times 10,000. The smallest. Because it's not just the two or three gathered there together that I can see, but it's angels, archangels, and the whole company of heaven. So the last thing on earth we need to do is look around in the sanctuary and get discouraged. Nor, nor do we need to say, oh, how is it that Pastor Rody is content on a Thursday to just preach to 12 people? That seems like so... I'm not preaching to 12 people. 
<laughs> There's angels and archangels in the whole company of heaven. The entire church Catholic is gathered there. Wherever Christ is there, his church is. And thus, what a, what a humbling and joyous thing it is to preach under any circumstances. All right, and that's the same for us as we come into divine service. We need to realize there's a lot more there than meets the eye. Yeah, so maybe that's the other, maybe that's next time some pastor says, how many do you worship? I'll be like, well, one God and three persons. How many attend on Sunday? I'm sorry, I can't count. It's a multitude that no one could number. <laughs> that's who's there. All right. Well, what we see then, what we see then is the great joy and the glimpse and foretaste of this divine service we have even right now, which is meant to inspire in us ever greater desire in the Lord and his gifts and the things that he is doing as the divine one serves us. And then we realize that as we transcend this world and enter into our heavenly rest, we receive the fullness of this, now no longer merely by faith, but by sight. But we see that the dynamics themselves haven't changed. The divine one still serves us. And that's the latter half here of Revelation 7, where we're looking at verses, um, in particular, uh, 13 through 17. Okay, let's pause there. Let's see if you have any thoughts or any questions. Um, otherwise, what I want to do then is kind of shrink back to the basics. I see a, I see a couple of hands up front. Are we? Do we have a microphone? Don't run too fast. You might pass out. It's very hot in here. I was wondering if you think that uh, Lutherans will always sit in the same seats in heaven. <laughs> nice one. <laughs> nice one. Could you imagine like giving a dirty look and, to, and like like you kind of give a dirty look because someone's in your seat? It's one of the four living creatures. He just kind of looks down and snorts at you. <laughs> Could someone quiet those angels down? They're making a racket. <laughs> yeah, it's joyous and wonderful and diverse. The saints, the angels. And I think we need to embrace that joy and that diversity. I mean, I know it's, I know things in the sanctuary annoy us because we already come in annoyed. We're in a fallen world. We're annoyed with ourselves more than anything else. And then we take that out by being annoyed with everyone and everything else. That's how it really goes. But we ought to, I mean, not only repent of that and receive Christ's forgiveness, but then pray that he gives us those new eyes to see the joy and diversity of the saints that he's placed around us. Little children, obnoxious old people, people in our pews, visitors who don't know what they're doing. That one guy who always says one part too loud. Oh yes, it's almost as if I've sat in church services my whole life. <laughs> too. Yeah, you just by nature, we nitpick all these little things and said we should see it as the glorious diversity of the saints. Enjoy all we can. Thank you for that. Yep. Well, this is a little bit of hard for me to explain what I'm trying to see. Or So, is us in this world and Jesus in heaven and he with he is telling us all these scenarios and what he's offering us and what he promises us. The thing is we living in this world, we have such a hard time letting um, what the world offer us, letting that go and seems like, we 
we hold on it so hard and now agree to it that it really chains us and paralyzes us mm-hmm. to not to free us you know, to be able to go to to that uh, to the Lord's promise to that faith that he you know that because it seems like okay you're preaching it all this what Jesus is telling us and Jesus and all his the salvation but the maturity for the sanctification because we all let's say the believers mm-hmm. we all know that because the Bible says so mm-hmm. how can we uh, mature into it and be able to let those chains go and not to agree with the world, you know, everything that the world offers us mm-hmm. and growing free into the Word of God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How to get that? Yeah, well, the number one most subversive thing you can do is go to church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's the invasion of the kingdom of Jesus here on earth. A kingdom in this world, but not of this world. That's the most subversive thing. And then, and then we begin to realize, and it's always piece by piece, little by little, with plenty of backsliding. Um, but it's always, it's always really learning that friendship with God is enmity with the world. And then the joy of this is we can see that some of the things that pain us most in our lives, I'm talking about like macro, macro things, you start to realize, well, part of the reason why this pains me so much is I'm trying to get out of it something that I shouldn't get out of. It's a very subtle kind of, if we're willing to just be so bold with ourselves and recognize a kind of idolatry. I want my relationship with my kids to look like this. I want my relationship with my spouse to look like this. I want my retirement or professional life to look like this. I want people to appreciate and love me. I want, I want friends who would do anything for me. Um, you know, these things we want and desire, um, but we want and desire it too much in such a way that it really says we want these things to fulfill us. Whoever said that those were the things to fulfill you? So we start to realize piece by piece that it precisely in the lack of fulfillment, we come to hunger and thirst all the more for the one who is fulfilled, our Lord Jesus. We come to see him all the more and, and more and more treasure um, the divine service as a glimpse of that fulfillment that we will ultimately have and enjoy in him. What happens then is all these problems that were just ultimate in our minds suddenly become penultimate and become contextualized. And we start to see them as, well, this is what God is giving me in these things. I can be grateful for that. Um, This is what God is giving me to do in these things. I can be grateful for that calling and duty. Um, But it takes away this kind of idolatry that we all experience where we lock onto these things, whatever they may be according to your personality or circumstances. You think this is what will fulfill me if only this thing were right. Start to realize that that's not true. And then you start to help others realize that, that that's not true either and that we were designed for God. We were designed for God. And so not until the beatific vision will we finally have that, that complete rest um, that our restless souls seek. Yeah. Okay, hand in the back, and then we better call it a day. Um, please, Brent.
Yeah, are there any other traditions that look at the divine service the same way that the Lutheran Church does, or a few Lutheran churches anyway, as the goddess dienst? And what are the implications of that? Yeah, I think I think what you have, unfortunately, is just a like if you look at the if you look at the older liturgies in church history, they were more much more faithful to this idea, and Christians were by and large large much more conscientious that the reason why I go to church is to receive from Christ with my brothers and sisters with the Church of God. There's no higher glory on earth that I can experience. Nothing more meaningful. Um, you see that start to go away um, as these sort of hierarchical structures and layers are put in place and service becomes more and more a duty and what you need to do and God's not doing anything and it's all just... I mean, to where I... I don't know, this is just so native in the air and native in our flesh. I spent many years of my young life just thinking that church was basically a place, I mean, through no fault of the pastor of the church, of course, just my sinful flesh, but thinking that church is just a place where a bunch of Christians go and we all sit in a room and we all sing about God. That's all that's happening. If that's all that's happening, who would want to go to church? Yeah. Um, so I think part of this is having our eyes open to what the true nature of church is, God's promise, God's words. Um, many of the, many, and, and this, by the way, also is like, well, I care about Jesus. I don't care about the liturgy. Well, then watch the liturgy. If you don't care about it, then watch the liturgy be designed in such a way that you no longer see Jesus. Yeah. And that's what's happened in, in American evangelicalism. And that's what's happened in Roman Catholicism. And that's what's happened in the East. If you don't care about the liturgy, the liturgy will be designed in such a way that it obfuscates Jesus and hides him. This is why Luther and, um, and the Reformers said, hey, anything that obfuscates Jesus or hides Jesus, out. Everything that proclaims him, preaches him, promotes him, teaches the people, remains and stays and is worth fighting for. And so that's really the, the Lutheran attitude towards this rich heritage that we've received that is so frequently clouded over by nonsense. I mean, in this, this day and age in American Christianity, I think lots of people who feel very passionate about worship, they're not, they're not actually there to receive from God. They're there because it's a gig for their band to play in or, um, you know, some kind of experience they can have on their own terms as the music's swelling and the fog machine's pouring out. And, um, you know, again, all of this is just a kind of like idolatrous form and all in the wrong direction. It's all in the direction of me and what I want and what I'm doing for God, as opposed to coming in, in humble, attentive passivity to receive what God has for me, and then to entrust, or to, well, to trust, rather, that that, is, um, that that is precisely what I need. Yeah, a lot of this is akin to reading the Psalms. You know, as you read the Psalms, like, if you read them with, a, with a, an attentive passivity, you realize that God is giving them to you and for you, and they are exactly what you need. You know, we don't, you don't need to go scanning through the Psalms for the one that fits your exact mood, right? And you, nor, nor do you need to like, go to church and hope that, the, hope that the preacher happens to preach something that's according to your mood. Church is precisely the place where we can say, you know, my mood is probably done me more harm this week than good. I'm going to set that aside and just hear what the Lord has to give. Anyway, thank you for that comment. We're over time. We'll pick up uh, after Christmas. The Lord be with you.